0: is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Hi, I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Week 37, I'm back working from home. That's still the case for many. It was a holiday-shortened trading week where we had another dose of vaccine news as the world, thanks to rising virus cases and hospitalizations, was reminded repeatedly that we will be dealing with COVID for months to come. With that in mind, coming up this hour, how to make sure COVID-19 never happens again. We're going to head to the Bloomberg New Economy Forum, check in with the CEO of Moderna, the CEO of Welcome Leaf, and the chief epidemiologist at the Chinese Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Also, bringing transparency to the child care and daycare markets with the co-founder and CEO of Upfront. Plus...
2: We are in worse shape right now than we were in March because we are now not heading into the summer where everybody was expecting that things would get better.
1: The CEO of Travago on the travel industry being back where we were in the spring. We begin though with what was one of the most read stories on the Bloomberg reported for Bloomberg Business Week about something that we were all trying to get back in the spring. You know you were trying to do this, it wasn't easy. And now even though there's more than ever before, guess what, there's still not enough out there for the US. We're talking about Lysol and how we just can't get enough of it. Let's get more from Bloomberg News team leader for U.S. healthcare, Drew Armstrong, and Bloomberg Businessweek editor, Joel Weber.
3: When you did see it, you 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 know immediately hoarded it. It That's was right. one of the great hoarding items. Um, and you know back then there were a couple stories like that that I was really interested in. And you know one was uh, 3M. You know how do you make right. how do you make more N95 masks yesterday? And we did that one as a cover story. And the lights on one just stuck with me because I was like, boy, I'm really curious how you make more Lysol. (laughs) And Drew Armstrong actually happened to have that same kind of urge and came back with a fully realized story. That is one of my favorites from sort of pandemic times. Drew, how do you make more Lysol?
4: So, yeah, I, I started asking that question um, earlier this year, you know, for exactly the same reason you guys did, because I couldn't find it anywhere. And, you know, this company that makes it, um, Reckett, um, Ben Keiser. It's a London company. They're a big consumer conglomerate. And one of the things you find from um, reading about this is that you know they're this massive company with huge resources, but you know they have this relatively thin, delicate supply chain that's stretched all over the U.S. and all over the world. And when the pandemic really, you know, did two things: one, just put their demand through the roof for this product, but two, you know, just absolutely upset all of the kind of global trade and even the U S trade and you know all the kind of things that you need to make stuff in a factory in the world that we live in. It, it really jumbled their world. And so they were, they were great about opening the door and telling us, you know, how they did everything from like flying seven forty sevens full of chemicals from Europe to the U S so that they could make more wipes and Lysol spray. Um, at one point they were starting to run out of ethanol, uh, which is one of the main ingredients in Lysol. So it happened that Americans weren't driving as much because they were all staying home and ethanol is an important gasoline additive. So they retooled a ethanol plant in Nebraska that makes ethanol for gasoline and just shipped train cars with these, you know, 30,000 gallon tanks of ethanol to their factory in New Jersey.
5: It's it just
4: fascinating to hear about all the things that they did in order to, you know, keep this stuff flowing and still has not been enough.
1: This is one of those stories, man, you know, you could just sit down and talk about for a long time because it's just interesting facets, something we take for granted, right? But you really dug into kind of the nuts and bolts of it. Tell us, though, and I have to say on our planning call this morning, we were all getting into it. Tell us about Mr. Lysol and Flushing Meadows. Sure. So uh,
4: there's a guy at, uh, at, at Reckitt called Joe Rubino. He has been, he has worked on Lysol for 35 some years through its previous owners. He's a microbiologist. Um, you know, there's a there's a little red banner on the Lysol can
5: mm-hmm. that
4: says kills 99.9 percent of germs, and you know that's that's kind of thing is everywhere. Now. If you look at Clorox, if you look at Purell, everybody makes the same claim, but they were actually the first people to do the research to show that. And one of the things that they did um, in, in the early days of this product, back in the um, in the very early, uh, sorry, not in the early days of the product, but back in kind of his early on in his career in the early 90s, they would do stuff like. Coat a a toy ball with uh, a harmless uh, virus and put it into a daycare and then go around swabbing everything to figure out, you know, where did this virus go? Um, They did the same thing in hotel rooms with people who had colds. They really tried to understand the microbiology aspects of what their products could kill. And one of the things that they studied was, you know, just how much, you know, if you have basically a plate full of, you know, germs or microbes, you know, viruses or bacteria, how much does it actually kill? And, you know, he, he was talking to me uh, as he was explaining this in one of many conversations we had. He said, well, we had a, you know, three log or a four log or even a five log reduction. And what that actually means is ninety nine you nine know, nine nine um, percent the marketing folks took a look at that and they said, "People love the idea of ninety-nine point nine percent. We got to put this on the can." Um, and that's kind of the history of where that number comes from in disinfecting. Uh, it, it, they were the first to make it. Now everybody everybody does. It actually does a lot more than that. But you know, there is a tremendous amount of research, both scientific and consumer, that goes on behind these products um, to figure it out. Uh, you mentioned flushing meadows, it's my <laughs> favorite place in this whole story. They Lysol makes a toilet bowl cleaner, and um, You know, if you make a toilet bowl cleaner, you're always changing and tweaking your product. You're introducing new, you know, formulations, things like that. You have to test it. And if you sell your toilet bowl cleaner around the world, you have to test it in toilets around the world.
6: Makes sense. So they have
4: a room, it's room A154 in Montvale, New Jersey, and there's 104 (laughs) toilets brought in from around the world. There's a UK row, there's a European Union row, there's an American row of toilets, there's an Indian row of toilets. And they have a
1: back room where they actually replicate the water conditions uh, from around the world to match those places. That was definitely an inside look at Lysol from, of course, Bloomberg News team leader for U.S. healthcare, Drew Armstrong and Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. Check out that story and more in the current issue of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine on newsstands online and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Coming up, Americans clamoring for Lysol. You just heard about that. And the world clamoring for a vaccine and a year that we hope we never see again some thoughts on how we get there that's coming up next on bloomberg business week this is bloomberg
0: this is bloomberg business week with carol masser from bloomberg radio
1: We're bringing you some of the recent highlights from our daily radio broadcast and podcast in a week where we got an update from AstraZeneca and the University of Oxford on their vaccine. Now, the race for a vaccine was part of a discussion that I moderated from our recent Bloomberg New Economy Forum, a panel that really looked at how the world can ensure that we never, ever have another catastrophe like COVID-19. That panel was with Stefan Bonsal, Chief Executive Officer at Moderna, Regina Dugan, CEO at Welcome Leap, and Dr. Wu Zun Yeo, Chief Epidemiologist, at the Chinese Center for Disease Control and Prevention. We began by hearing from Moderna's CEO on their vaccine.
6: We announced that the first interim analysis of a phase three study, that's a study of 30,000 participants, showed almost 95% efficacy. Uh, but the piece that makes me almost more excited is the fact that of the 11 people with severe disease, they were all on placebo, had none on the vaccine. And so if you think about it, what does that mean? I mean that once we get the final data, we should be able to see if this is confirmed that if you get our vaccine, we we'll have 95% chance of having no disease. And if you get disease, you will have mild symptoms, meaning you will not have severe disease. And as we know, it has really been a big impact in terms of hospitalization, for a patient doing the worst ICU, for a patient doing the worst death, and all the impact it has had, not only on human life, of course, but on the mental health, on the economy, Uh, We think this could be a game changer, and so what we're doing now is getting the the final data all locked up, submitting this to regulatory agencies around the world, Uh, and hopefully, I hope, getting the vaccine approved under emergency use before the end of the year. We're making as much product as we can, and we said we'll have before the end of the year 20 million doses ready to ship as soon as we have regulatory approval.
1: All right, so that's certainly some upbeat news. Dr. Wu, I want to bring you into this conversation. When you and I spoke over the weekend, I believe you were in Xinjiang or had been in Xinjiang. China has done, and I think most would argue that as among the biggest, the most developed country, you guys have done a good job in terms of containing the virus. But even so, there continues to be breakouts. Where are we in China when it comes to COVID-19?
7: I just come back from Xinjiang. Now back to the Beijing, we uh, just uh, controlled another outbreak in Kashgar, Xinjiang Uyghur, Autonomous Region. The epidemic started in the latter of October and uh, brought under control in uh, November. So in the China, I think what we did is uh, have very strong uh, surveillance and uh, treat control the epidemic as a war. So. Uh, go back to the earlier response to the initial outbreak in Wuhan. Most of the people suspect China delayed or does not respond very quickly. Actually, i give you two examples. We did a very uh, bold decision. For example, when the outbreak uh, first noticed by doctors, that's uh, last December 27th, and the national experts arrived in the Wuhan, they made a bold decision to close the seafood market. At that time, there were only 40 cases, and uh, 27 of them had exposure to Huanan seafood market. Make that decision is tough, and the national expert and the local expert has different opinion, and the local uh, expert has gone against uh, to achieve that decision. Another decision is to uh, shut down Wuhan city uh, the decision was made in the January 22nd. At that time, we only have about 500 cases. That decision made had uh, determined the scale of the COVID-19 outbreak mm-hmm. in the whole China. The two, the two decisions made, I think, is the best of the philosophy prepare for the worst scenario. Based on that principle. So we uh, responded to the COVID-19 very quickly. We try to remove all the right virus from the community to clean it up that make the society safe. So now China, I think, is back to the zero local transmission now. Over.
1: Re- Regina, I want you to come in on this, too. What are you hearing from your network about sure. kind of where we are in this process and in this cycle in terms of dealing with the virus?
8: Well, I want to calibrate for a moment, because remember, the normal time to go from an outbreak to a vaccine is something like five to 10 years. So this achievement here is remarkable, unprecedented. The team at Moderna goes from virus sequence to first dosing in humans in 63 days. And as Stefan is fond of saying, that's an advance a decade in the making. In fact, I remember a decade ago when mRNA-based vaccines were first proposed. And the critics said there was no evidence to suggest it would work. And others said there is no evidence to suggest it won't. We should try. And if we are successful, it would matter. And here we are today. In fact, it matters. So, I think what we're hearing now is how do we begin to work on the next pieces? So, how do we shorten the clinical trial? How do we begin to get manufacturing underway so that we can couple the early warning with a rapid response. And there's still much more to do there. In in my view, this is the Sputnik moment of our generation, right? And in the same way that Sputnik inspired a space age, so too might this pandemic inspire a health age. Lots to do.
1: So... I want to continue this conversation because now I want to kind of look forward. A quick poll and a reminder to everybody who's watching the poll that's out there. We'd love to hear your response. The question we're asking, what are the lessons from Asia's successful response to COVID-19? Some individual freedom must be sacrificed for the public good. That's answer A. Answer B, early lockdowns reduce overall economic impact. Answer C, more investment in digital health infrastructure, including contact tracing. And D, face coverings work. So having said that, and we'll look for those responses. So let me ask you, how do we make sure this never ever happens again? Bloomberg New Economy said, there is no greater challenge for our global leaders than figuring out how to make sure this never happens again. Stefan, can we do this? Do we now have the playbook?
6: I think we've learned a lot. And as Regina said, I mean, first, what has been done this year by scientists around the world and the collaboration we have seen is unprecedented in terms of a speed. But we've learned a lot as well. And I think there are two dimensions where we should invest aggressively across the world in public-private partnership to reduce the time to get to a vaccine. Because as we know, you know, public health measures are extremely important. Uh, and right now, wearing a mask and social distancing are critical. Uh, treatment are very important to take care of people in the hospital. But to really get back to normal, we need to vaccinate people.
1: And as we know, the world is focusing on that vaccine. That was Stefan Bonsell, CEO at Moderna, Regina Dugan, Chief Executive Officer at Welcome Leap, and Dr. Wu zun Chief Epidemiologist at the Chinese Center for Disease Control and Prevention at the recent Bloomberg New Economy Forum. Coming up, the race to a vaccine made transparent out of necessity. Coming up next, we've got an entrepreneur and the CEO of Upfront who is looking to bring transparency to a market that touches many Americans and their kids. That's coming up. Up next on Bloomberg Business Week, this is Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Well, American parents with children under the age of five, check this out. They're spending more than $42 billion for early child care and education, such as preschool programs. Now, that from the Progressive Think Tank Economic Policy Institute. Dana Levin Robinson, she's co-founder and CEO of Upfront. She is working to bring more transparency to the child care and daycare market. And then perhaps many more industries in the future. And like so many entrepreneurs, creating her business, well, it came from a personal experience.
9: I had a baby at the peak of the New York City week. Wow. (laughs) It has been quite a year for me, you know, between starting the company and having a baby in the middle of it, you know, and the pandemic was just another extra twist, you know, that I did not anticipate. Mm -hmm. But if you actually remember hearing the stories about the hospital separating the couple, we were the first couple separated by Sinai.
1: Wow. That must have been tough. It's been a year. Yeah. It must have been a little tough though, right?
9: Oh, yeah. No, it, w- it was pretty devastating, you know, because nobody, especially those of us who are pregnant that late, you know, nobody was expecting this to happen, you know, around March. But we did the best we can. And if anything, yeah. you know, the fact that I run a company that works with parents so closely and now that I'm a parent myself, it really does. You know, I always understood our users, but now that I actually am a parent myself, it really does resonate.
1: Well, all right. So talked about, about this. So many people who create companies, and I think I've um, you know, said this a million times. I bet you've told this a million times, but it's often when somebody goes out to start a company, it's often uh, a personal story. We talked with the CEO of Compass Pathways. It was a company that went public this year. It was a personal story uh, yeah. that got them going on their business. What's your story that, again, you've probably told a million times, but what's the story that got you to, to, to create Upfront?
9: Yeah, it's a personal story. So it actually wasn't with daycare uh, specifically, but with Mm -hmm. weddings. So when I was engaged, I met with a florist, looked through all the pretty photos. And then at the end of the hour, got the pricing sheet and realized that she was never in my budget. And I remember being so frustrated that I just wasted my time meeting someone that I should have never been considering. And sort of the seed got planted of like, why didn't I know that? Mm. Why is this Pricing hidden? Why is this information? Why do I get every single piece of information except what it costs? You know, and we're talking about a wedding here. You know, these are some big price tags. So really, you know, sort of the second thought came in of, huh, you know, these prices are out there. People have used these businesses before, but nobody's really ever given that data a destination. So that's really what Upfront is about. And we really start with the philosophy that prices should be public information. You know, the parents that we talk to, the engaged couples that we talk to budget is one of the top variables, you know, one of the top dimensions of how you make your decisions. Mm -hmm. Yet we're acting like it doesn't exist. And it's not part of the conversation to begin with. So, you know, we're collecting real numbers.
1: Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting and kind of ironic to some extent that we kind of kicked off our show talking about, we went to a press conference uh, with President Trump. It was about drug pricing. And just, yeah. you know, I, we've heard, we've all seen the stories about the lack of transparency of why one country pays this, why one other country pays this, you know, for the exact same drug. And it sounds like you're trying to bring that as well when it comes to daycare and childcare. Absolutely. And, you know,
9: to us, daycare is just the beginning, you know, and eventually we'd like to grow into weddings and funerals and private education. There's really no shortage of industries that operate this way, and we see no reason why that's the case.
1: So, is it essentially um, just the idea of no different from we had Travago on, a tr- you know, travel platforms or where you gla- want to do yes. s- you you want to do something? So, give me the options, and I can look at them all.
9: Exactly. I mean, consumers these days are so educated. And anyone you talk to, you know, especially with daycares, for example, location and cost are the pretty much the decision factors of how you choose a daycare. Yet you can't search for half of that conversation. So to us, it makes absolutely no sense. You know, that's how you end up with people like me meeting that force that they can't
1: afford. I do wonder, Dana, as you look into this and you talk about, let's start with the childcare and daycare market, what have you found out in terms of the wide range of pricing and how can some greater transparency maybe reduce these costs, costs for individuals? Because we know for a family, this is often a big line item. Oh, it's,
9: it's not just a big line item. It's often the second largest line item after housing. And, and I think not enough attention is given to that. I mean, in New York State alone, you're spending about 22% of your average household income, and that's just by the Economic Policy Institute. And according to our database, it's even higher in New York City. The average cost is around 2200 a month for a daycare. So these are crazy numbers, right? Right. And to us, you know, pricing transparency really represents, one, you know, we're actually just saving you the time and the frustration of, you know, going down this path, doing the work, going in these in-person tours, which are now riskier than ever, um, but we're also trying to let you discover some options that you might not have known were around you. Thousands of parents are already searching, comparing, doing exactly what we designed the company to do. And we're hearing, you know, anecdotally that daycares are actually doing just fine because people want the kids out of the house. <laughs> so it's actually very funny. You know, everyone assumes that, oh, nobody's going to send their kid back to daycare. That's not what we've heard. Everyone's working from home. They want the kid out.
1: That's Dana Levin-Robinson. She's co-founder and CEO of Upfront, looking to bring more transparency to the daycare market, what it's like to create a business in a COVID-19 world. You are listening to Bloomberg Businessweek. Speaking of transparency, we got a lot of that once again from the CEO of Travago. We got his expectations for whether 2021 or 2022 will next be the year of travel. This is Bloomberg.
0: Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio.
1: We're bringing you some of our favorite interviews from the past week on our daily radio show and podcast, and that includes a friend of the show, someone we've reached out to several times during the pandemic. Axel Hefer is CEO of the online travel platform Trivago. Now, this week, the airline industry's main trade group came out and they said they expect losses to balloon further in 2021. Now, you know, most business travel is down dramatically, and for Trivago CEO and his team, well, they find themselves in a very familiar and unfortunate spot.
2: We are, we are basically back where, uh, at least in Europe, we are back where we were in, in April, mm. whereas the U.S. Is, is still doing a bit better, but, um, but obviously um, in, in bad shape as well.
1: Well, so what does that mean for you guys? And I know you have a global workforce. Um, you guys have been dealing with this from day one. Is Does it feel like it was as it was back in April for you guys? Have you made some adjust adjustments or even just adjustments in your expectations about kind of how long it takes for the travel industry to get back to normal?
2: Yeah, I, as a business, I think we are, we are in much better shape because there is much more visibility what the next 12 months will look like. Um, we, we have significant progress in vaccine development. Um, the testing has become much, much faster and, um, and cheaper. Um, and, and we are almost one year in the pandemic and also have some data that we can rely on. So um, we are quite positive for, for a sustainable recovery starting really in, in early next summer mm. um, for our employees and, and I guess for, for all of us. Um, Uh, However, I think uh, we are in worse shape right now than we were in March because we are now um, not not heading into the summer where everybody was expecting that things would get better, but we are heading into the winter where everybody is expecting like in a normal flu wave that things will get worse. So uh, the Mm. emotional stress on our employees um, is, is, uh, is, is greater than it has been in the first lockdown.
1: I've had a lot of conversations with leaders about that specifically. We know it's a global health pandemic, but health covers so much, right? It's your physical health as well as your mental health. So what are you doing to help out your employees?
2: Yeah, so um, there, there's, there's only so much you can do. I mean, we are obviously mm-hmm. trying to be very transparent. Um, so we've got very frequent all-hands. Everybody can ask any kind of question. Um, we've brought forward our strategy process for next year um, so that now everybody can prepare for next year and is looking forward. And I think that, that, is, um, that is from a psychological perspective the most important thing, that you have something to look forward to and that you have hope that things are getting better. Um, rather focusing too much on the present, which can be, in, in particular in Europe right now, be quite depressing.
1: Well, and it's interesting, you know, um, from what I understand, you are among the group that really think that we've got to, as a member, you as a member of the travel industry, have to kind of remind everybody that it's not smart to push everybody back <laughs> to, to think about traveling, that we've got to be smart about kind of where we are so that we can get this under control.
2: Absolutely. So, so I think there there are basically two things that are really really important. One is to, um, to to manage the number of infections, and for that, obviously, traveling is not good, and and any kind of uh, social contact is not good, and that, that's where most of the European countries currently are in. But it's equally important also to give some hope and something to look forward to. And there, um, we as a business look forward to the summer, which is obviously our peak season, and are are they quite confident? But. I think it's also important for, for the society overall to be able to look forward to something to a significant improvement. And for that, the last two weeks in particular, I think have been good in particular with the, with the news about vaccines.
1: Yeah, let's talk about that because it's something we've seen certainly uh, when it comes to the travel industry, specifically the hospitality industry. We see stocks move specifically on that news. Having said that, as soon as we get the news, you know, uh, about two weeks ago from Pfizer initially, and Pfizer did file with U.S. regulators for an emergency use authorization of its COVID-19 vaccine, but as soon as we got the news from Pfizer and Moderna, quickly also were many stories that followed that said, hey, we got to slow down. There's logistics, there's getting it out there. Um, There's just a lot of questions, too, about the efficacy or, or how long-lasting that efficacy is. I mean, there's still a lot of questions. we got about a minute, and then we'll come back and talk more. How do you see it in terms of the vaccine?
2: Yeah, so, so the, um, I, I think it's, it, it was clear, clear for quite some time that there would be vaccines available. The, the positive news to us is that the, um, um, the effectiveness is much greater than, than what a lot of people had hoped for. Having said that, the likelihood that it will have a real impact on the first half of the year, I think, is quite quite uh, small, um, mm. given that it will take some time, and it will first focus, obviously, on the high-risk groups.
1: So, Axel, when we get on the other side of this, what do you think travel will look like? I think you said, you know, maybe when we get into some of the early se- summer season next year that we start to kind of feel a little bit more more normal. But what will that normal be like when it comes to the travel industry? Will it be a little bit different?
2: I, I do think it will be different. Um, so the first thing that, that we've seen this year, and I do expect the same for next year, is that there was a very, very strong trend towards local travel. And mm. a, a lot of people will still not be comfortable to go very far um, with the experiences that uh, quarantine requirements and being imposed on a very short notice this year. Um, on the other hand, I, I do think there will be some difference because all the governments globally will have had one year of experience and um, will probably have a better regime in place to allow for some international travel. Um, The least recovered segment we do expect to be intercontinental travel. I mean, that that will recover uh, probably not next year, but the year after.
1: Interesting. And is that, I mean, you look a lot at leisure travel, but leisure business, business, is that something that's a few years off to getting back to normal?
2: Yeah, on, on business, I think there's, there's a very different discussion. I mean, the, the, um, on business, we don't expect that business travel will go back to where it was coming from. And, mm. and the key reason is that um, we are all shifting a lot more towards remote work. And, and when you do remote work, you do accept that you can be very productive without being in the same room. And that also has an implication on how many business meetings and how many business trips you need to do, both internally within your company, but also externally. So, um, I, I do expect the the business travel recovery to follow a similar pattern than in the last couple of crises, but not to reach the same level that we've seen before. There is it, a structural change.
1: When it comes to visibility, I think you guys have said that you anticipate, I think maybe your CFO had said that you're going to be down about 70 to 80 percent this year in terms of revenue compared to 2019. That's pretty much that's it, right? That feels about that feels about right, unfortunately.
2: I mean, the, for for the remainder of, of the year, you cannot really expect that much. I mean, Europe mm-hmm. is, is pretty much um, in a complete standstill. Um, uh, in the southern hemisphere, there there is some um, summer activity and also quite quite strong summer activity. And the U.S. I think is somewhere in between with the rising uh, infections. It's it, it will be a bit up to the reaction of the government um, how to how to control the situation and what that will then mean for the the travel activity. But yeah, we don't expect. Um, any any significant business for the remainder of the year?
1: So when you say local travel, and which is what you were already seeing, I know we've talked about that before, and you expect more of that. Is there anything though in particular, again, like the the type of trips? I know we've talked with lots of individuals too about you know things like hiking and parks, like you know places where people felt spread out were certainly in demand. Is it that type of traveling that you think continues to be in demand?
2: Absolutely, mm. absolutely. For, so for the summer, what we've seen this year is that. Whenever the situation was under control and, and, and there was a general sentiment that it's safe to travel, the first trips that, that really picked up were, were nature destinations. So the, the coast or the mountains and, and trips where that you would typically classify as, as vacations to relax rather than cultural trips. Um, on the other hand, we, we do think that in the second half of next year, there will also be some return of city trips where you're more focused on, activity, uh, going to the museum, to the opera, um, or just going to nice restaurants. But for summer, um, it, it's clear that, that, and I think this year, the or next year, the need might be even greater because we will come out of a longer, um, difficult situation to yeah. just get a rest.
1: Yeah, that pent up demand, man. I, I can't even wait to take a trip. Um, Talk to me, I want to switch gears a little bit, but talk to me about the Google European Union antitrust case because you guys have been involved and you have been part of the group of tech companies who have written to the EU competition chief and um, talked about Google and that how they favor their own services and web searches. Talk to us a little bit about that and your concerns here.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I think it's a very interesting topic because the the European Commission has looked into various practices of of some of these mega platforms for quite some time. But um, from my perspective, what has changed over the last, perhaps only the last year, but but uh, but for sure over the last two to three years, is that there seems to be now general consensus, even globally, um, amongst pretty much all the tech companies, that um, these mega platforms are getting too powerful and and, uh, that they are leveraging their control over certain, um, stages in the overall, um, value chain to, to then dominate, um, subsequent, um, activities and subsequent products. And, um, if you, if you look at uh, Google specifically, um, in the European Union, they have more than 90%, uh, market share in general search and, um, they expand their value add of the overall, um, ecosystem by adding more and more products that are displayed in a favorable way um, versus uh, competing products and for us specifically that has been the hotel search product i mean hotels hotel price comparison is something that that was innovated by by trivago and invented by us Mm -hmm. Um, but over the last couple of years the the visibility of the competing product has been increased quite significantly Um, and if you just compare how our ads on google are displayed and how the google hotel finder is displayed you can see that it is factor six or seven times bigger and much more appealing uh, in the display. And, um, that, that is, that is, I think, a very tangible example, um, how, how they are really leveraging their control over one, um, one product into another.
1: That's Axel Hefer, CEO of the online travel platform Trivago. That wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. More ahead in our next hour, including the global pandemic giving a boost to the 15-minute city. Plus, line stop maybe, venture capitalist Susan Lyne on the COVID trends that will leave their mark. And doubling down on toys during the shutdown with Mattel's president. And finally, art imitating life in the new HBO drama series, Industry. That's all coming up on Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Hi, I'm Carol Masser. Coming up in our second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, highlights from our daily radio show and podcast, including stories in the magazine and some of our favorite interviews. That includes this hour, venture capitalist and former president of ABC Entertainment, Susan Line, on the venture capital scene tale of two cities during the pandemic. Also, another business that gets a boost during COVID-19, we talk toys with Mattel's president. And two London bankers skip out on finance to create a new HBO drama series, Industry. Let's though get things started this hour with a recent story in the magazine that coincided with the Bloomberg New Economy Forum. The forum, which I mentioned last hour, is all about building a better future and the global cooperation needed to do it. That includes building stronger cities. In keeping with that, Bloomberg CityLab reporter Laura Bliss explored what's known as the 15-minute city. Here's more from Laura and Bloomberg Business Week editor Jill Weber
3: it really fulfills sort of the urbanization pillar that uh, of nef um there's several pillars and that's yeah that's what this one falls in and it's this idea that i think has really become um uh caught on with urban planners in certain cities around the world that what if you could live in a in a city where everything that you needed in your daily life from your job to your kids' school to where you get your groceries, et cetera, et cetera, was basically in a 15-minute radius of your front door. Um, And once you do that, you know, you don't have commutes, you don't have cars, and it can sort of totally transform uh, quality of life as well. And that idea is one that, boy, it sounds really appealing to me, at least. Um, Mm -hmm. And and Laura, I'm curious, how is this taking shape um, around the world?
10: Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me um, and just smiling, uh, listening to you praise the article, Joel. So thank you so much for that. Um, It was really fun to work on. So this is, you know, a 15-minute city, as you've been describing it, right? I mean, it's, it's really not a totally new idea, right? I mean, I think we can think back to how cities were laid out before the 20th century brought us the automobile and zoning codes, which, you know, divided up our cities into different kinds of zones and, you know, put a lot of residential neighborhoods pretty far away from uh, commercial districts and, you know, shopping districts and so forth. You know, in in the past, what you could walk to was was what was around you, right? Um, And so in some ways, this is an idea to sort of return to that time. Um, And there are cities like Paris, you know, Barcelona, uh, Milan, European cities that sort of hue a little bit closer to that older model that um, have actually been working on this for For some time, um, and also here in the U.S., Portland, Oregon, um, is one example of a city that's really been working on what it calls complete neighborhoods where you have your, you know, shopping, your library, your health services, your daycare, your your school, you know, within a 15 to 20 minute walk or or bike ride or or transit trip. Right. Um, So, yeah, and, and I think it's really kind of taken off um, this year, partly because of the pandemic, which, which I'd be happy to talk about more.
1: Well, and let's talk about that. I have to say it sounds utopian. I think you say that it is utopian in many ways in your story. But in because of the pandemic, yeah, use that as the backdrop and, and how we are thinking about this kind of concept for basically urban living, and maybe not just urban living, um, but even kind of smaller cities or more modern cities.
10: Uh, that's right i mean it is it is a pretty significant departure from that the recent past where you know certainly here in the united states i think we can we can also relate to the, the model or at least outside of new york right for, yeah. for almost any kind of trick you're you're getting in your car and and you know i think the average actually like us trip is something like 10 miles, um, you know, whether you're going to work or or just to grocery shop or whatever it may be. So this is a really different kind of idea for for that model of city. And indeed, it is pretty utopian when you think of how far cities will have to go and like how many, you know, decades of um, infrastructure investment that really will have to be unearthed to create cities that are more in this kind of European walkable uh, model.
3: Uh, so I, I want to bring up, you know, you say utopia, and that also makes me think of the flip side, which is like for every, you know, urban planning that had great intentions, it also can often uh, leave behind um, um, disadvantaged communities. And, and I'm wondering how, how how that conversation is happening um, as, as, you know, cities wrestle with this trend.
10: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the two main criticisms here are exactly what you're pointing to, Joel. I mean, if you have a 10-minute city and that means, you know, you can walk or bike to your favorite cafe, your favorite library, maybe even a, a co-working space. Uh, whatever it may be within, you know, a really short distance of your home. Well, the question is, who is actually staffing, um, you know, those those nice cafes and, and grocery stores and so forth? Um, are those people who are living in your neighborhood? And, and what if you live in a fairly high-income neighborhood? Um, how how likely is that, that, you know, everyone is going to be kind of staffing and, and uh, bolstering the economy in this kind of microcosmic city that we're talking about? Um, are, are actually able to live in that area. And so the question is then, you know, is, is the 15-minute city kind of neglecting to think about uh, transit systems, right, that actually do succeed in moving people, moving commuters across large distances in cities and, and actually supply a really essential service in that respect?
3: So how, how does that, uh, how does the idea of a 15-minute city wrestle with the realities of, of climate and, and climate change?
10: Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I mean I think I do think it that that question becomes especially interesting this year during the pandemic as we see cities all over the world grapple with this exact question of how are we going to keep our, you know, sidewalk dining uh and like slow streets. Uh and there I'm referring to how a lot of cities in the US have actually shut down uh you know, streets street space for cars to make way for bikes and pedestrians.
1: And perhaps increasingly, all of this making way for the global cities of the future. That's Laura Bliss, reporter for Bloomberg City Lab, along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. Well, innovation, well, it's happening in our global cities, so too in our world at large. That from venture capitalist and former president of ABC Entertainment, Susan Lyne. She's coming up next. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week, and this is Bloomberg.
0: Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio.
1: This week we welcome back venture capitalist Susan Line, whose professional background includes publishing, multimedia, and of course venture capital. She's former president of ABC Entertainment, ran Martha Stewart Omnimedia, oversaw AOL.com, also Movie Phone. She also, of course, today is president of the company she founded, BBG Ventures. And she, like the rest of us, saw a world like no
11: other this past spring. Like a lot of other parts of the the finance industry, um, the the VC uh, ecosystem went um, went quiet for a couple of months. I would say from mid March to let's call it May, um, with most funds, most people who were either LPs in funds or who were directly investing in companies. Um, Uh, everybody went internal and and essentially spent time looking at their portfolios, um, making sure that that the companies they were backing were going to have enough capital to get through the worst of this. I think everybody, including BBG Ventures, spent time with each of our portfolio companies. Um, And the message was pretty clear, put together a plan, that assumes you are not going to be able to raise any capital for the rest of the year. Um, and a lot of companies ended up, well, everyone ended up cutting their, their projections for the year. A lot of companies ended up doing rifts of varying sizes. Um, and, uh, actually the investing really came back. I won't say completely, Mm. but, uh, but, quite strongly um, in the late spring, and it's been going strongly ever since. Well, do you feel like... that doesn't mean there aren't companies that have been deeply impacted by this, and we could talk about that. Well,
1: uh, and forgive me. Yeah, continue along that, because I am wondering how what's happened, you know, does either impact, you know, your thoughts on some of maybe your investments, or just, it's just companies that just aren't going to make it through.
11: Um, there are definitely companies that are not going to make it through yeah. um no question about that but uh it's it's really sort of a tale of two cities right There are some companies that have had incredible tailwinds as a result of mm-hmm. of uh the pandemic um and some of those are you know fairly obvious edtech has been a a huge arena um certainly companies that were enabling telehealth. Um, we have a mental health startup that has been uh, certainly accelerated by, by, uh, by COVID, um, not for positive reasons, but, right. uh, but certainly the services are, are needed now more than ever. Um, and anybody who was involved in, uh, in work from home right uh-huh. so if if you were enabling companies to continue working because you were doing teleconferencing or anything to do with uh with virtual teams, um those companies have done extraordinarily well uh, and certainly some aspects of e commerce continued uh to be very strong uh, and I'm leaving out amazon and yeah. The the obvious uh BMS here but uh but certainly um people have taken advantage in larger numbers of the ability to right. order online than to get things delivered. And we were talking about,
1: you know, what companies, you know, and how this whole environment, Susan, maybe changes things longer term. And you talked about a tale of two cities. You were talking about telemedicine. You were talking about e-commerce.
11: Yeah. So um, I think one of the most interesting things to come out of all of this is how quickly – People adopted new behaviors, right? Uh, so uh-huh. I, I think we we sometimes assume that that change is slow, that that people have sort of ingrained habits, and that it's going to take a decade for any real movement to take place. but the there were several really interesting things you could point to that that occurred over the past six, eight months. Um, one was definitely the acceptance of telehealth, so uh-huh last year, 2019, I think about 11% of, of people had tried telehealth. By June or July of this year, it was up to 46% wow. of all consumers. Mm-hmm. And uh, now we're hearing that 80% of those people who, who were, were adopting telehealth during this period plan to keep using it after COVID. So, they discovered that they could actually get a lot done, save time, maybe save some money Uh uh, by using telehealth. Um, Another area where we saw real changes um, was in brand loyalties. Uh So 77% of consumers are using new channels to shop, and they're buying new brands. Now, some of that was... uh, was actually forced by the fact that maybe their their favorite brand was uh, was not available, but again, they are saying when you you survey them now, they say they're going to stick with this new buying behavior post COVID. Right, um, and that opens up a ton of opportunity for you know new consumer product companies to really um, really innovate. <laughs>
1: Well, Susan, how much do you think, we heard that we held the the Bloomberg New Economy Forum last week, and each day was a different vertical, and on the vertical that was climate, Alan Jope of Unilever was on, and he talked about gen-zenials, which wasn't a term I had heard yet, yeah. and he basically said, listen, if you have a brand, you know, it's not... Gen X, Gen Y, Millennials, you need to think about Gen Xennials, the ones that are going to be your future consumers for decades to come. And they care about things like your impact on the environment. They are going to determine how they shop based on who you are as a brand. And I do feel like, I don't know, that something is really changing. And I know I look at things like that. I know my 17-year-old definitely looks at things like that. And I do wonder how that shapes what you guys do in terms of investing and how you
11: look at the world. Absolutely accurate, and it it has uh, it has become a real focus for us. You, you know, we've had we've had uh, a focus on Gen Z for a couple of years now, largely mm-hmm. because I've been through enough generational shifts to know that when uh, new generation becomes the dominant consumer, um, they want their own brands. Man, that is so true. Just ask my 17-year-old daughter, an
1: avid consumer. They think differently about brands. That's Susan Line, founder and president of BBG Ventures. All right, coming up, speaking of new ventures, the 75-year-old toy maker Mattel, it recently launched a new platform. We get details from Mattel president Richard Dixon. That's coming up next on Bloomberg Businessweek. This is Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Well, check it out. Decorations are going up. Yep, the holidays are here. And one company that's synonymous with the holidays, it's Mattel. It is now in its 75th year. It recently launched a new platform called Mattel Creations. Mattel President and Chief Operating Officer Richard Dixon dropped by to talk about it, virtually, of course, and to talk toys, which, check this out, are being snapped up big time in the COVID shutdown.
12: The good news, as as we try and find it in today's, you know, uh, challenging times, is that families are obviously spending a lot more time together, a result of obviously, you know, the, the pandemic. And in fact, it's reinforced the importance of play and toys. Um, You know, the whole toy industry has continued to surge. We had a great third quarter uh, overall in the industry, and and we're incredibly proud of Mattel's performance, which outpaced actually the overall market. Uh, We've been gaining share and ultimately really um, obviously responding to our consumers and providing the right toys and the right assets, if you will, to occupy during these challenging uh, times at home.
1: What have you seen in terms of trends, in terms of the types of purchases people are buying? From my understanding, people were buying Barbies, they were buying Hot Wheels. What what were people buying? Were there any interesting trends that you noticed in the buying?
12: Yeah. Well certainly again, as I mentioned, the whole industry was up almost all categories posted growth. Yeah. And within the cat within the industry, of course, as I mentioned, Mattel is leading. And in our portfolio, we've just had, you know, enormous success with Of course, categories like dolls, Mm -hmm. you know, Barbie has had um, an incredible uh, run for the year. Uh, You know, great, great increases, terrific new product reflecting, obviously, diversity and inclusivity, great new toys. The, The games piece of our business has also been incredibly successful. You know, obviously, families spending time at home using games as a way to occupy their time uno uh the number one uh card game in the united states
1: i love uno can i just say love it love it love it
12: (laughs) Uh, right well we love hearing that and and many many other people do love uno in fact um uno is going to be celebrating its 50th year if you can imagine that next year which we've got a lot of excitement and new new product coming to uh keep those uno fans going
1: we play kind of a Ubo Uno version uh, at the beach. My brother has created a version that's just ramped up and it's just a riot and we play for hours. So um, that's good to hear. Uh, 50, 50 years. So I do wonder, Richard, do you anticipate that the trends that you're seeing? Because I'm thinking about the holidays and I'm thinking it's been a rough year and, you know, want it to be a good holiday season. I'm not going to be around a lot of family. Um, and I do wonder what you anticipate for the holiday season.
12: Well, I'll tell you that um, the, the Toy shopping, as we see it, the outlook for the fourth quarter is is strong. Mm-hmm. In fact, toy shopping has already been planned earlier than last year, and with the um, you know surge with online and e-commerce, the ability to shop early is is more enticing than ever. Uh, you know, our research shows almost 75% of shoppers plan to start holiday shopping even uh, even just before November, and obviously, we're already in November. And with everything that's going on with the pandemic, some families are actually planning on making these holidays, you know, truly extra special for their kids. Mm-hmm. It's, been a, it's been a really challenging year uh, for kids uh, in, many, in many aspects. And I think parents are recognizing, you know, the, the simple rewards of toys and, and fun. So there's, there's a lot of, uh, I think, excitement around the industry and certainly in the Mattel portfolio for the fourth quarter.
1: Have you? What's your supply chain been like during this process?
12: You know, it's an asset uh, for mm-hmm. Mattel. You know, we, we have uh, an incredible group of dedicated people and facilities uh, around the world that have been working tirelessly, certainly under uh, the, the current, you know, restrictions that have been in place in various different places. Uh, but ultimately, working to supply the demand, uh, you know, given that there's been such a great surge uh, in the uh, industry, and, and in particular for our brands and toys, our supply chain has been working incredibly well. And as you know, in any business, it's about execution. Right. And our execution has been really, really terrific. It's been a, a great year of excellence in uh, performance-driven metrics for the company. So
1: in any kind of... So- I find that fascinating, your supply chain. like So any of the manufacturing that was needed to be done, um, I'm assuming a lot of it happens outside the United States. None of that stopped?
12: Well, you know, we certainly had gaps. uh, But if you look at when the timing of the most uh, restrictions based on where our facilities were, uh, primarily in Asia, Mm -hmm. that really took place um, at the end of last year and, in fact, the beginning of this year. Uh, if you recall, January and February. And, and in terms of production, mm-hmm. uh, that's the slow side of our business. Yeah. Uh, where we really ramp up in production is uh, in, in, uh, in the start of the second half, where restrictions were lifted and we were able to resume uh, much of the workforce and, uh, and working patterns.
1: And that's a reminder of how COVID differentiated when it came to businesses. Some were definitely hurt during the pandemic. Others actually got a boost. That's Mattel president and COO Richard Dixon. Well, from creating toys that kids love to creating content that we adults want, we check in with the creators behind a new HBO drama series. It's right up the alley of our Bloomberg audience. Straight ahead on Bloomberg Business Week. this is Bloomberg.
0: is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio.
1: We're going to wrap up this week with something that seems just about perfect for our Bloomberg Business Week listeners. It's about a new eight-part series set in a fictional investment bank in London. It was released on HBO earlier this month, created by two former British bankers. Its pilot was directed and executive produced by Lena Dunham. It is called Industry. And full transparency, the Bloomberg Terminal, well, it's got a recurring role in the series. We headed to the UK to check in with Mickey Down and Conrad Kay, writers, co-creators, and executive producers of the new series.
13: We met at university where we did, like, basically nothing. Um, I mean, we were supposed to, we were there to work. We, we just made each other laugh quite a lot. Um, uh, we worked a little bit by the end. And, you know, we got to, you got to the end and you're doing the finals and you think, wow, I need to get a job because everyone seems to have one. And, uh, and you look around and particularly everyone had a job in banking, it assumed. So um, it was a mixture of sort of fear and peer pressure that pushed us into that world. Um, I know Conrad's father was in banking as well. So maybe there was a little bit of with pressure. But, you know, we, mm. yeah, after you, know, you, you come out and you, you have that pressure and then you you just, I, I mean, I, I speak personally, after about a year, I realized I was very ill-suited to it. But I, I, I sort of liked the world. I liked the sort of, the wit, the sort of, the, the, the paraphernalia of the place. and. Conrad had been there for and Long, for three years when uh, I started uh, trying to pull him out of it and say, come on, let's write together. And the first thing we wrote together actually was a banking-based script, which was more sort of a cathartic exercise for us, um, and it wasn't very good at all. But it sort of was an opportunity for us to see if we could write together. And then we sort of put that aside for a bit, and then we were doing some other stuff, we were developing other TV shows, and then we met this uh, producer called Jane Tranter, who's the uh, head of the company, Bad Wolf, who made Industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she said, you know, have you ever thought about writing something said in the world of finance? Because obviously you guys were in it. We said, yeah, we have, and it wasn't very wasn't very good at all. She said, well, have you thought about writing from the perspective of the perspective of the people right at the bottom, which is you guys? And we <laughs> thought, okay, well, actually, that, that's probably a better idea than trying <laughs> to write. It's a sort of derivative version of Wall Street, which is what we were trying to do before. And that was sort of what unlocked the whole thing for us. I mean, like we wanted to write at that time. We were we were much younger, Right. so we wanted to write sort of mid mid twenties relationship show, Well um, character driven relationship show, and it was a it was a way of doing that, but set in an ecosystem in a world that we could we we thought we could render very authentically. Well, and
1: <laughs> I don't want to get into those relationships, but I, I'm curious, um, Conrad, did you not like the world of banking as much as Mickey didn't?
5: Um. No, I struggled with it, really. I mean, yeah. I was, uh, the thing about that, that thing about that industry is you, you're, you're kind of, you're, you're forced, especially, basically, I was doing a kind of like a role between research and sales at an American investment bank, and then I, I was forced into American equity sales. Um, and I, I, what I realized very quickly is that I had to basically pick up the phone and speak to people about stocks that they'd, been, they'd owned for like 10, 15, 20 years, and, and supposed to tell them something new and interesting or give them a bit of edge to invest in these stocks that they knew, you know, they had a profound acad- academic knowledge. And I basically was just reading a research and I'm parroting to them. And I, I felt super out of my depth and I felt super uncomfortable calling them because I was like, you know, even though I had a very good um, research department above me, I just felt, I felt, um, I, mean, I felt very insecure. It was, like, it was one of those things where you have to, imagine calling up an expert uh-huh. and telling them, and pretending that you have an edge on something that they know everything about and then trying to bluff your way through it I just I I don't know I felt very uncomfortable doing it so I wasn't very good at it and probably that's probably why I got fired
1: but what's really fascinating and I've been reading about this about the series as well is that you know you really have a diverse cast and when I think forgive me um, but most people would agree that when I think about the financial community certainly here in the United States it doesn't feel very diverse and Mickey it feels like you know is that how it is in London
13: it's weird actually. It's sort of a mixture because we, we wanted to write from a sort of unexpected vantage point, of the show, and obviously that's what led us to writing from uh through the eyes of the people coming at, into it for the first time, you know, the grads. But we also just wanted to you know, it wasn't very cynical, but we wanted to create characters that you wouldn't have as you said, expected in that world. Right. And we thought, Well that's the way that's the way in that would be um that would be the most interesting. That said, I mean like I worked at a really sort of quite blue-blooded, very old investment bank in London, mm-hmm. the European firm, and the, my, 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 my sort of direct line manager was a black um, French woman. So I felt like, and you know, there were there was a lot more diversity than I think these places get credit for. And, right. like, and Conrad can attend. Well, I mean like trade laws are sort of they are I mean, you know, they sell themselves as meritocracies and you know, we can unpick whether that's true or not as to the cows gonna home come home. Yeah. But I think they are quite international places. So you do get a quite a diverse range of
1: people. So one thing I wanted to get into with you guys is how much, I, I, all right, let me take a step back. I've talked with the the creators and the folks behind Billions, and they really tapped into the financial community, talked with hedge fund guys and, and individuals to really kind of put as much reality into the show. So how much of your own kind of world, how often do you, you know, call up somebody within the financial community and say, I need a couple of stories just so that you can, you know, you could include it in the series. And I just wonder, Conrad, let me start with you. How much of that maybe kind of made its way on screen?
5: No, I mean, I
14: mean, obviously quite a lot. I mean, between me and Mickey, we have, I'd say, four years in the industry ourselves. So a lot of the, um, the ways um, people talk to each other and, you know, certain cadences of the language and and the jargon was very, very important to so us. Like, uh, I mean, me and Mickey are big fans of any kind of films that feel a bit inside baseball. And for so, so, so us to come to, you know, having experienced the world to not do a version of it that felt very specific and very um, authentic would have just been to do it a disservice. Um, so we, we felt confident writing the way people speak to each other and, and the way traders talk to salespeople, salespeople talk to traders. But then, in terms of the actual storylines, obviously, you know, there were there are aspects of it which we we brought to ourselves. But in terms of the kind of the wider, making sure everything checked out, I mean, we you know we have a very big episode in episode four where our, one of our lead characters makes a mistake around a, um, a sort of you know a, a dollar she has a, she's running a long a dollar sterling position into into non farm payrolls and. You know, that was stuff that we didn't feel very comfortable modeling or even beating out in terms of stories. So we had a couple of consultants.
1: You're um, talking about Harper?
14: Yeah, exactly right. And we had a a consultant who worked in um, foreign exchange for J.P. Morgan and Morgan's family who sort of worked on the show with us. Um, He was a former managing director there. And he basically, you know, just, you know, it was very important to us to not only get the story beats right between her covering her trading era with like back office and stuff like that, but also making sure that when we were doing all the price action on the Bloomberg screens that the director happened to be filming on the day that all of the price action was modeled correctly. And that, um, the, you know, the the guys who were working on all the graphics on our, on our side from a production point of view knew exactly what they were doing because Bloomberg had partnered up with us. But we were really, we, you know, we were adamant that whatever, wherever the camera was on the floor on the day was picking up stuff that felt real incredible to the trading floor and that all just came from me and Mickey working very closely with a consultant who'd been in the industry for 20
1: years. Right, full disclosure, the Bloomberg Terminal does um, have, maybe not the starring role, but uh, we think it's the starring role uh, in the series. But <laughs> but listen, no, you know, Mickey, this is so true. Like, we talk about it when we watch something that's, you know, a drama on the financial industry. I'm like, oh man, they got that so wrong. Or they're like, they were spot on. I mean, getting the authenticity into it it really makes a difference, Mickey, in telling this story.
13: Absolutely. I mean, it was a watchword for us the entire time. We just kept saying we want to be as authentic, authentic, authentic as possible. We were, I mean, like, one of the things we, me and Conrad said when we were trying to sort of work out what the visual style of the show was, at one point we said that we wanted it to feel like as if you just brought a camera onto a training floor, which I think might have been slightly less interesting than what we've come up with. <laughs> but, I mean, in terms of, like, I mean it's you know we got, obviously we got was amazing from Bloomberg to uh, to give us all their their equipment and like we we had amazing consultants but you know me and Conrad been out of the business for 10 years maybe 7 years right. and um, we needed to speak to people who have been in it now so we actually did also speak to we are, we've got lots of peers and friends from university that are still in it and then we also we spoke to people you know we spoke to sort of first second year analysts at places to see actually what is um, what is the attitude to it to it now like who's who, what kind of person is going into finance what is they? what are they hoping to get from it is, uh, in, how, uh, so are, are the smartest brains from university going into it or are they going to tech or um, what, what sort of what yeah what is the what is the attitude towards it and what is it uh, what, and the people who are not in it um what is their attitude to you when you decide when you decide uh, when you say you're going into it so like we need we did we did really sort of have to speak to sort of gen z recruit the main
14: reason we wrote it actually was nothing to do with finance it was to do with the five characters and that we uh, the inception point of the show, and it sounds like a bit of a cliche, but it was always about it was a character drama before it was a workplace drama, and it was mm-hmm. about the five people who are entering this world and the only reason this show to us was interesting and maybe probably to an average view would be interesting is it was it was about an outsider's lens on a very insidery exclusive world and um a world that people think they know but, but we we deliberately picked five characters from the outset to follow that from some, were some variant of an outsider, either on a socioeconomic level or a gender level or a racial level. And that was the only reason that it became interesting.
1: Just another example of art imitating life. That's Mickey Down and Comrade Kay, writers, co-creators, and executive producers of the new HBO drama series, Industry. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune in daily to Bloomberg Business Week, Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. You can also hear more of our Bloomberg Business Week conversations. Download them at Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch us on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News. And be sure to check out our Bloomberg Business Week Extra podcast. It's with Dan Blumenthal. He's the director of Asian Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. He's got a new book. It's called The China Nightmare, The Grand Ambitions of a Decaying State. That book kicks off with this sentence. The geopolitics of the 21st century will be defined by an intensifying strategic rivalry between the People's Republic of China and the United States over the future of the world order. Some great weekend reading. Bloomberg Business Week. It's available on newsstands now, online, and on the Bloomberg. Have a safe weekend, everyone. Happy holidays. This is Bloomberg.